0: Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join Associate Pastor Reverend Dave Kiefer. Tim Challies is uh, one of my favorite bloggers. He's actually probably the leading Christian blogger. He's about my age, which means to the kids in the assembly here today that he's really old, and to our more mature members that he's still just a puppy and inexperienced. But he, uh, he reflected on what he's seen over the 40-some years of his life, and this is what he writes. He says, we are witnessing change that is both swift and seismic. And one of the most jarring changes for Christians today has been our transformation from being good guys to bad guys. I want you to consider what Charlie says. Is he right? Does it resonate with your experience? How do, how do people in the broader culture talk about biblical Christians, biblically committed Christians? What do you over here at the bus stop, at the water cooler, or at the local bar? How are the mandatory DEI trainings framed? What are the underlying assumptions? Have any of you had interactions with, with neighbors or, or friends or, or family that initially surprised you and then confused you and then concerned you because of how they were framing issues that seem pretty radical, but talking about them like it's just common sense, whereas things that were common sense five years ago are now radical and harmful to society. And maybe now you're growing a little bit impatient with it, or maybe fearful. Maybe you've thought this out loud, maybe you've even said it, you're saying, "Uh, what is going on? How did we, the church, Christianity, how do we become the bad guys? Well, if that's how you feel, I hope our time this together in the book of Acts this morning will be helpful to you. Because, let's face it, if you're already thought of as the bad guy, you might as well learn to play the role well. But I warn you, becoming a really good bad guy takes a lot of effort. And it takes wisdom. You need to learn to be cunning as a serpent, even as you remain innocent as a dove. So this morning I want to talk about becoming really good bad guys. And in case, if you're wondering if a pun is intended, yes. People who are regarded as bad guys, but really they're good. So three questions I want to ask. How do Christians become the bad guy? What's the cost of being the bad guy? And how can we thrive, not not just survive, as bad guys? Let me pray and then we'll take a look at the scripture together. God, thanks for your people. Thanks for your word. We thank you that you're a God of revelation that works throughout history that helps us understand how you work through all ages and through all seasons. And so, Lord, we pray that as we come before your word this morning, that you would give us a sense of anticipation that you will meet us in our context and in our culture and with the things that we struggle with because your word is faithful and true. It is wise and it is beautiful and it is given to us so that we might know how to live. We pray, Lord, that you would edify your people and that you would equip them to what they have been called to be. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you have a Bible, turn with me to Acts 17 and read along as I'll be reading all 15 verses, but I'm gonna stop at verse 10 and make some comments and then we'll move on uh, later on with the rest of the verses. Acts 17 says this in verse one, now, when Paul and Silas had passed through Ampipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ, And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and so taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob and set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring Paul and Silas out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar saying that there's another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. And the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. Two observations just jump off the page as we read through this text and seek to learn how followers of Jesus can become a really good bad guy. How does that happen? And it only happens if you're doing the right thing. And the more effective you are at doing the right thing, following Jesus faithfully, the more you wind up becoming a bad guy in the eyes of the right people, those who are threatened by the truth of the gospel and his advancing kingdom. See, Paul was not hated for anything he did wrong, He's not hated for being rude or arrogant or dismissive or vulgar or, or apathetic to the worries and concerns of the culture. Look at it in verse 2. He, he reasoned with the Thessalonians for three Sabbath days. Verse 3, he, he explained why it was necessary for Jesus to die and to rise again in order to pay for the sins of the world and, and to restore sinners to God. And he proved that Jesus was the promised Christ. But notice also that the more influential Paul grew, the more hated he became. Look at verse 4. It's only after Paul and Silas persuaded some Jews, many Greeks, and not a few of influential women in society to follow Jesus. And those influential women would have been women of high social status and political connections. And it was after he influenced them that Paul was promoted from an interesting guy to a bad guy. And if you look at verse 5, it says the Jews were jealous. So what did they do? Well, they organized and they planned and they got active. And they took wicked men from the rabble and formed a mob and started a riot in the city. Now it's not every day that people devote such energy to shutting down the message of the gospel. And, you know, it got to be clear, Paul and Silas cannot be blamed for the riot. The blame lays squarely at the the feet of those who who are threatened by the gospel. And as long as you're doing the right thing and doing it Jesus' ways, you can take such resistance as a compliment because you're definitely being taken seriously and People are definitely taking notice and you're getting their attention. But here's the truth of the matter. Sometimes when you threaten the right people, those guarding the gates of cultural institutions, whether it's a synagogue or a school board or a C-suite of a company or a, a giving foundation, you become the bad guy. You're no longer an interesting guy. They're not really interested in hearing both sides of the story. That ship has sailed. And you're not even the annoying guy anymore. No, 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 no. You've become the bad guy. And so you become the bad guy as a Christian because you preach the gospel and try to reason with people. And I I say that to clarify that Paul didn't become a bad guy because he was a jerk. And that needs I say that to cut the legs out of any here this morning who want to inappropriately play the role of martyr, you know, feeling all rejected because you act foolishly or caustically or dismissively or or rudely to people, or you're just generally hypocritical and ungodly. There's no honor in being rejected for those reasons. But if you are rejected for biblical faithfulness and godly character. Jesus says, you are blessed. Blessed are you if you are persecuted for righteousness' sakes. That is Jesus' promise, not mine. Now, as an aside, this is a good place to call out two extremes worth mentioning if we're ever really to become good bad guys. First, we have to remember that not all criticism is of the church, or of Christians is undeserved. When society calls out Christians, we have to ask, are they right? And we do a grave injustice if we fail to acknowledge the pain caused by those who identify as Christians but then bring shame upon his name by acting in the exact opposite way that he taught. And like the Old Testament prophets, we must be the first to call God's people to repentance anytime believers or God's people use their power and influence for personal gain rather than redemptive purposes. We need to be mature enough to know that not every critical voice is out to get us. Everyone is made in the image of God, and even our harshest critics may have something to teach us. So that's the one extreme we want to avoid, that not all criticism is undeserved. But secondly, we want to avoid the opposite extreme, that not all criticism is deserved. Just because society critiques the church doesn't mean the criticism is fair or warranted. Some criticism is based on misinformation and misunderstanding. Some is downright disingenuous and manipulative. Why? Because biblical Christianity is diametrically opposed to all other cultures. Secular culture, Western culture, Eastern culture. Christianity is going to be opposed to something in each of those cultures. As Tim Keller once quipped, biblical Christianity is always out of step with the surrounding culture. But it's never out of touch. And that's where it's confounding power resides. Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians that the gospel will look foolish to the world, but it is the power of God and the wisdom of God for salvation. Stephen McAlpine gives an example of how out of touch Christians appear. And I could really relate to this example as a biology major that worked on college campuses for 20 years leading religious discussions. He writes that, Christians are sometimes accused (coughs) I'm sorry, Christians are sometimes accused of being obsessed with sex. But the reason we talk about it is because our culture talks about it so much and brooks no compromise over it. See, 10 or 15 years ago working on campus when people discovered that I was a believing Christian they would ask questions like well don't you believe the Dinosaurs existed. <laughs> and now, that question has been replaced with well, what do you think about homosexuality and where do you stand on gay marriage? See, the implication, the charge, is that to not believe in dinosaurs is stupid. Just so you know, I believe in dinosaurs. But not to agree with same sex marriage is bad. Now, while the initial objections have changed on college campuses over time, you know, as we move from a modern world to a postmodern world, the confounding power of the gospel remains. Skeptics, starting out with those very objections, have found answers sufficient for placing their trust in who Jesus is and what God's word says. For God's word is beautiful and rich and deep, and it describes our situation and the hope for humanity very, very well. And that's why the gospel is such a threat. So let's avoid the extremes of in pride, dismissing all criticism, or in fear, or maybe a misunderstanding of humility, failing to dismiss unfair and biased criticism. Now back to the text. Paul became the bad guy for being faithful to Jesus and frustrating the elite. Now what about our context? How do we become the bad guy? How do we become the bad guy in this context? Well, in one sense, Christianity or Christians have always been considered bad guys. In the eyes of the world and the sinful flesh and and Satan, C.S. Lewis humorously illustrates that in his seminal work, The Screwtape Letters. But in another sense, there are seasons of being viewed as more or less the bad guys. Throughout history, God in his goodness brings seasons of revival to cultures. You know, where the blessings of his kingdom clearly are seen to improve life and the, and the church is considered a blessing. We see that happening in Africa and, and South America where the public generally considers Christianity... A good. But as those blessings build up and as culture revels in the blessings but forgets who brought the blessing, and they become arrogant and have a sense of entitlement and stray after other gods and idols the idols of power and wealth and sex and comfort a spiritual winter takes hold. For God allows fruitfulness to cease. And we see this cycle clearly throughout the Bible, most clearly in the book of Judges, but you see it in the book of Revelations that talks about the time between now and when Christ returns. And so we can anticipate this cycle continuing now. And so the question we must ask, is God allowing a spiritual winter to take hold in our culture? Aaron Wren writes for the popular blog First Things, And he notes our broader uh, culture's shifting attitudes toward Christianity. Wren argues that as late as the 80s, maybe early 90s, society at large had a positive worldview of Christianity. Christians may have been nerdy, come off as self-righteous, but Christianity... Was considered generally good for society. Even non believers and nominal spiritual people would attend church regularly simply so their children could learn good morals. Wren believes that in the mid 90s, with the rise of postmodernism, Christianity moved from being viewed positively to being viewed neutrally. This perspective is probably best summed up in the cliche everyone has their own truth. In other words, there's no one truth that's good or another one that's bad. There's no one truth that's better and another that's worse, including Christianity. You do your truth, I'll do my truth. We'll all politely agree to disagree. That's the neutral view. But Ren then goes on to argue that something happened around 2014 where the cultural gatekeepers and institutions shifted, and they seemed to happen all at once, which led to a growing negative perception of Christianity. Now, he identifies the Obergefell decision on gay marriage as the fulcrum. The balance shifted after that 5-4 Supreme Court decision that undid thousands of years of legal precedent and the understanding of marriage and family. The question is, do we live in a negative world? where people view Christianity as a net negative, as a, as a harm, as a danger. Let me offer just two pieces of evidence that may illustrate how people have a negative world perspective of Christianity, even here in Bible-believing Bible Belt Lancaster. I'm a board member of Harvest USA, and it's a vital ministry that's been helping adults for over 30 years who struggle with all kinds of sexual sin, an addiction? Well, they were recently canceled by Lancaster Extra Give, you know, that big umbrella organization run by the Lancaster Community Foundation. It's a group that in the neutral world allowed all 501c groups to participate, whether you were Planned Parenthood and advocated for Killing unborn babies, or whether you were the pregnancy care centers and advocated for saving unborn babies, all were welcome as long as you were a, a legal nonprofit organization. And the extra, cu- you know, the extra give is serve the community well in the neutral world. But the powers that be want to usher in a new world and usher that neutral world out the door, even in the Bible Belt of Lancaster. They want to usher in a more enlightened world where Christianity is seen for what it is or what they believe it to be, which is a danger and a harm to humanity. And you may think, not Lancaster, I can't, I can't believe it. But as a board member, I have the letter to prove it. And it's the nicest letter I've ever read that accused me of being a hate group, a member of a hate group. Second, our family is visiting the township middle school. It's a beautiful new middle school. My tax dollars can prove it. Uh, And we wanted our kids to get familiar with the building and uh, be able to navigate their way through the classes and the hallways. And, um, you know, I had great difficulty finding a classroom that did not have LGBTQ advocacy posters on the front door. It was like walking through... I mean, literally, it felt cultish. It, it was everywhere. It was the only thing that was everywhere. On every door, there's, a, there's two pictures. One of the teacher and an explanation who they are. And the other, this LGBT advocacy of safe space. Now, I wonder what it means when it's posted on 95% of middle school classroom doorways. I, I wonder about the teachers that might choose not to post it. Are they... Presumed to be not safe and trustworthy? Do they bear a scarlet letter of shame? Now, I was told by my kids it's just about anti-bullying, but no other groups were identified. I mean, have (laughs) have we been healed of bullying for race or culture or religion or political beliefs or simply dressing weird? Is there no longer bullying against students who choose not to drink or do drugs or have sex? The school is against bullying, just make an anti-bullying poster. In the neutral world, I understood what a safe space was. The only time I saw these were on college campuses. Usually they were small stickers and they were posted on the residential director's door or they were posted on the psychologist's office door. But in the negative world, I, I wonder what those safe space posters mean. Who are we creating safety for? Who, who is safe? Are we creating safety for the teachers to talk about sexual expression and sexual identity with, with minors without parents' knowledge or consent? The warning is clear that you don't want to be lumped in with the bad guys. Parents might be the bad guys. And if you're going to assume anyone's going to be a bad guy, it's probably a parent, not a teacher. Bigots who believe in outdated sexual ethics from the Bible. Ew, yucky. It's unacceptable, dangerous, and harmful to community. Whether it's giving foundations, educational activists, literary guilds, medical institutions, government agencies, it seems like everyone knows who the good guys are and who the bad guys are. And in the broader audience, we don't even want to argue about it. You just act as if you already know who's who. They all know who's on the right side of history, just as the guardians of the institutions in Thessalonica knew who was on the right side of history. And they reflect that conclusion. It's echoed right there. These men are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying, there's another King Jesus. Now, when Christianity is assumed to be a net negative for society, the the first thing we must weigh is the cost of being the bad guy for following him. And that's our second point. What's the cost of being the bad guy because you follow Jesus? And there are three, three costs. There's a personal cost, there's a relational or communal cost, and there's a reputational cost. And each cost presents a nuanced experience of persecution. In the Thessalonican church plan, each member bore a personal cost for what happened. In verse 10, Paul and Silas are literally run out of town. In verses 5 through 9, Jason is attacked at home, dragged before the maddening crowds, blamed for the riot, and forced to post security, ensuring he won't cause any more trouble. And so these personal costs were were physical and, and they were financial. But they weren't the only cost. We had, we had relational or communal costs. See, Jason's home was attacked providentially when Paul and Silas were not there. And Paul and Silas didn't hear about this whole incident until later. And they come to find out that their host, Jason, who had been nothing but hospitable to them and showed loyalty and kindness to them, had been dragged through this miserable event simply because they were associated with Paul. That's one thing when people come after you. That's hard. But it's another when people come after your friends or or your associates. There's all sorts of nuance to the suffering when that happens. We we might say, listen, I volunteered for this. Take it out on me. Don't take it out on them. We might ask, "Will, will Jason come to blame me for what was done to them? We might question, will, will others begin to distance in themselves because they saw what happened to Jason? And we might wonder, will this young church survive? Will they doubt Jesus and turn from the faith because of all the spin and all the pressure? And in Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians, he tells us that that is his biggest concern that they would turn from Jesus. And so he sends Timothy, after this happened, he's in Athens, he sends Timothy back to check on them to see how are they doing? Are they still surviving and thriving or have they turned from the faith? And Timothy returns and says they are thriving in their faith and so Paul writes a letter of praise and encouragement. It's called 1 Thessalonians and he reminds them how God turns persecution to profit costs to benefit when people are persecuted for righteousness sake. So there's a personal cost, a relational or communal cost. And lastly, there's a reputational cost. If you are a follower of Jesus, you're bound to live by the truth. The enemy doesn't have to set such boundaries on themselves. The enemies of the kingdom often believe that the ends justify the means. Truth is negotiable. And we see it here. The truth of what Paul and Silas taught is, is twisted in such a way to make them seem dangerous and look ridiculous. Look at it in verse 7. And they're all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying there's another king, Jesus, and the people of the city were disturbed when they heard these things. See, in the court of public opinion, sometimes allegations are all you need. It doesn't matter if it's not entirely true or it's misframed. See, they didn't need to bother about the fact that Jesus told his disciples to render under Caesar the things that are Caesar's and under God the things that are God, nor to remind people that Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it was, my disciples would fight with sword and spear, but no, they fight with deeds of mercy and words of truth. How does this apply? If you remain faithful to Jesus in his word, and seek to represent him, you will pay a reputational cost. People will speak falsely against you. They will be pleased to let misunderstandings about you lie as long as it advances their mission. The question is, are you willing to pay that cost It will be relational, it will be personal, and it will be reputational. Are you willing to be seen as the bad guy for remaining faithful to Jesus? It is unavoidable over the long haul. If you choose to remain faithful to Jesus, it will be costly, it will be demoralizing, it will be exhausting. You will be made to feel like you stand alone and you are alienated. It just goes with the territory. And we can only thank God for his mercy that we have been protected from so much in the past. But a cold breeze is blowing, signaling that another winter may be coming. So, okay, that's, that's the cost for being the bad guy. It's personal, it's communal, it's reputational. Well, third, how, how do you survive once you become the bad guy? Let's pick up at verse 10. So as we consider those regarded bad guys for following Jesus, two things stick out about bad guy survival tactics. Okay? First, these bad guys watched each other's back, not in fear of the mobs, but in their love for each other and their faith in God. Verse 10, the brothers sent Paul and Silas away by night to safety in the nearby city of Berea. They watched out for each other. Verse 13 When the rabble-rousers from Thessalonica traveled to Berea in order to chase Paul down yet again and to stir up a mob against him yet again, the brothers sent Paul off by the sea and brought him as far as Athens. Now, as you read on, it becomes clear that their motivation, it's not fear of the mobs, but it's long-term advancement of the gospel. They're being strategic. They're not afraid, they're faithful. Because as soon as they learn, these rioters... Are really after Paul and no one else, not Silas. Silas chooses to stay in Berea with Timothy and face the mob. And he stands in the gap for Paul so that Paul, who is being called to another work, can focus on that. In verse 11 through 15, Paul had not changed his tactics one bit. This is the second tactic. The second tactic for survival is you got to keep up your ornery ways. Fearlessly pursue your cause, the cause of Christ. See, Paul didn't change his tactics a bit. He enters Berea just as he'd done Thessalonica. And as uh, as a Jew, he goes to his fellow Jews. He reasons with them about Jesus being the Christ. And so the question is, well, why would he change his tactics if he's having such a great impact? I mean, the result is increased fruitfulness for the kingdom. Verse 12, many believe, Jews and Greeks, not only... Women of high status, but men too. And with the increased influence and networking, he comes, you know, his enemies are even more determined in their persecution, which we see in verse 13. See, instead of stopping or changing tactics, Paul just continues fearlessly pursuing the cause. He goes to Ath- Athens and doubles down at Mars Hill. Imagine if, due to self doubt and fear, You know, people don't like me. They're saying all kinds of bad things. Maybe I should give up. If he had done that, we'd never have the beautiful sermon in the Areopagus that God used to shake the world. What does this mean? It means this. When you're okay, resolved, settled with being a bad guy simply for following Jesus, you become a very dangerous person to the real sources of evil because you enter because you interpret persecution through the lens of faith, not fear. And you grow courageous, not proud, but courageous, because it's not really about you or me or our reputations, it's about Jesus and his glory and his kingdom. And that courage is contagious. So how does this apply? Don't stop doing what you're doing just because it makes people angry or they call you names. If people reject you or marginalize you for doing the right thing, so be it. You don't have to be cavalier about it. You can be smart. But the world obviously has no problem pushing their values on you and your family. So why would you, as a Christian who have the hope of the world, shrink back from advancing kingdom values? Now I want to be clear here. Our call is to be stewards and to trust in God and his word. We don't trust in the institutions of man, but we steward whatever resources we have, whether it's our money or our time or our vote or our involvement in the community. It's about stewardship, and as we honor him, we see his kingdom advance. God has not called Christians to always play it safe because often what appears to be the safest play is just an illusion, Listen, if it were up to me, I'd prefer to learn courage in a safe space, under controlled conditions, but that is not where courage is learned for any of us. So parents, do you want to raise courageous kids? It's not taught in safe spaces. You have to call them to stand up for what they believe and to do what's right, not what's easy, even if it means being bullied at school or slandered or misunderstood, And I am so excited how some families at our church church with kids in public school have experienced the blessing of being persecuted for righteousness' sake. It is not easy, but it has been glorious, gloriously formative. At yesterday's breakfast, a friend airdropped me the following quote. I'm not exactly sure where it's from, maybe Tertullian. But this is the quote. Those that are not settled in their faith can never suffer for it. Skeptics in religion hardly ever prove martyrs. They that are not settled hang in suspense. When they think of the joys of heaven, they will espouse the gospel, but when they think of persecution, they desert it. Unsettled Christians do not consult what is best, but what is safest. Are you a settled Christian? Are you settled in your convictions, or are you... An unsettled Christian. Are you willing to do what's best or only what's safest? As Albus Dumbledore said, we must all face the choice between what is right and what is easy. Now, closing with quotes from Tertullian and Albus Dumbledore would work at other churches, but it doesn't pass muster in a gospel preaching pulpit like this because we need more than just good examples, right? We need more than speeches if we're ever to survive as really good bad guys. Yes, Paul and Silas have a lot to teach us by example, as does the church at Thessalonica. But by just looking at good examples, it misses the point of the gospel. Gospel means good news, not good advice. And only as we focus on the good news of what God has already accomplished in Christ for you and for me, and the promised good news of what he is yet to bring, only as we root ourselves in that will we ever have the staying power to do what we must do no matter the cost. The gospel must be central. It was central to Paul and Silas and Jason and the young churches in Thessalonica and Berea. And here's the good news. See, the whole reason Paul and Silas were able to be really good bad guys is because they were vitally connected to the best bad guy that ever lived. I mean, Jesus was pure goodness in the flesh and yet he was regarded as the worst among us, worthy of execution on a cross. When we understand that, we realize that Jesus is not just an example. He's our savior and our sustainer. He is our sustainer. And this is what Paul understood, that Jesus came into a broken world filled with lies and addictions where people are focused on me, 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 And Jesus pointed people back to God and called them to repentance. To repent of their lies and their addictions and their sin. And people hated him for it. And they did all they could to stop Jesus. They slandered his name and reputation. They said, ah, he drives out demons and heals people by the power of Satan. They mocked him. They beat him and crucified him. And then they went after his followers. They never yielded in their threats. But as we look at Jesus, instead of calling down fire from heaven, he loved his enemies all the way to the end. And on the cross, he prays, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And Paul experienced all of that because he was really the bad guy that thought he was the good guy, and he was persecuting Jesus. Jesus. And he stood by as one of Jesus' early followers named Stephen was stoned, and he's approving it. See, Paul was convinced that Jesus was a bad guy. But oh, he saw the patient, steadfast love of Christ who could reach a hard heart even like Paul who was guilty of murder. And hate. And he reached out to Paul with those penetrating words that changed his life forever. Paul Paul, why are you persecuting me? And on those words the puzzle pieces clicked in Paul's heart. And Paul saw that Jesus was truly a really good guy, who he had wrongly labelled the bad guy. And Paul was melted by Jesus, by his steadfast love, by his perfect goodness, his incorruptible goodness that never returned evil for evil. He saw a Savior who was regarded as a bad guy, treated like a bad guy. And so he, Paul, who was truly a bad guy, could be regarded as righteous. That's why Jesus did it. It's captured in 2 Corinthians 5.21. It says, He, Jesus, became sin. He who knew no sin became sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. See, only in as much as that gets down deep into your heart will you ever have the staying ability to be a really, really good bad guy. Really good despite being regarded it's totally dangerous and harmful. Because you have the, the power to interact with a real bad guy, with a real good guy who is regarded as bad. You're connected to him. See, Jesus isn't just our example, He's our sustainer. You have His Spirit in you, and He can strengthen you to live in this way of such steadfast love, such amazing grace. May God give us the courage to live is really good bad guys. Let us pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you that it gives us all that we need to live out our calling. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us, Lord, to remain faithful to you no matter the cost. Lord, let us never be bad guys for unrighteousness, but let us be willing to be bad guys for righteousness' sake. And Father, we thank you that you give us all that we need. Yes, you give us examples, but more importantly, you give us the gospel, the gospel promises, and you give us the very spirit of Christ, the same spirit that could pray for his enemies you've placed in us. You loved us when we were enemies and slandered your name. When we were bad guys, you came into a world we're called a bad guy so that we who are bad guys could become good guys. What a joy. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, Contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.